Hi, my name is Titi Mutendi and you are listening to Enterprising Families Podcast. Welcome to the world of Enterprising Families where we discuss the issues of governance, next gen and looking at how families of wealth and family businesses growing into families of wealth can preserve their wealth, become better as they go forward into a new generation. Hi everyone and welcome to this episode of Enterprising Families. And on this episode of Enterprising Families, I will be speaking to Rodolfo Pace and we're going to be speaking about conversations and agreements we may overlook as family businesses. I'm very excited to be tapping into Rodolfo's experience on this. So welcome, Rodolfo. Thank you, Titi. Pleasure to be here. Before we get started on the topic of today, I would like you to just give a brief intro about who you are and what you do so my audience gets an insight to who is speaking to me today. Okay. So the, the shortest version I can give you that makes sense is I am a, a member of the third generation of a business family originally from Guatemala, um, just south of Mexico in the U.S. And my family was was, in addition to being hardworking and creative, like like most business families, they were also uh, lucky to be one of the first to discover the concept of uh, family systems consulting. They bumped into Ivan Landsberg, who was is today one of the world's leading consultants in the area. But my family was, I believe, his third or fourth client in his career, and so we, my family, was benefiting from advice on the on good governance since roughly 1981. I was born in 72. So I grew up starting age nine with my parents in one ear, Ivan in the other. Systems thinking and governance became part of my daily bread. And as I grew older, I found that although I had a role in several different businesses and enjoyed it, in the end, my passion is learning and teaching and I ended up following in the footsteps, not of my parents, but of one of my key mentors, Ivan. And so I ended up in family uh, business or family enterprise consulting. Our goal really is to pay it forward. My family benefited greatly from good advice. And we've established the goal of, you know, making a better world, one family at a time. <laughs> and that's an incredible goal because I know family businesses really need the experience also they um, get the added benefit of um, working with somebody who comes from a family business background and um, understands the intricacies of the family system as much as the business system itself and you know that that makes a critical point in that the experience of having lived it really helps you understand just how interesting fun and complex the topic is and in, and in a good way, most people think, oh, my God, families are so complicated. They're such a mess. But the reality is complexity is, generally speaking, a fantastic thing to have. Mm -hmm. More complexity means more potential. Fa families who are in business together can do more and can do it better than non-family businesses if they are run optimally. And so there, there's this fear of complexity that that goes around and it's one of those conversations that need to be had is 
we need to manage complexity and use it to our advantage, but not run from it or avoid it. Um, and in the end, even having been born into a business family and having lived it is not the most important thing in my resume or should be in the mind of anybody who is a member of a business family trying to solve their own issues. It's that there are best practices out there. There's a lot of art, there's a lot of science, and it's studying what is the best way to do X, what are the proven methods to do Y, and what are six good ideas on how to do Z that is of greatest benefit either for your own family or when advising another. So mm. we often say that every family with children needs a pediatrician, every family with a business needs a family business consultant if only to bring them those that richness and resources and ideas that have been learned through years of study, not from just personal empirical experience. Because if you've been helping families without the benefit of academic knowledge for 20 years, you have 20 years of experience, but you may have learned all wrong lessons. Mm -hmm. That's correct. That's correct. Now, looking at our topic for today, which is conversations and agreement we may overlook as family businesses. We know that conversations are generally what people find that in family businesses, speaking to each other seems um, the natural way of communicating, but we don't always know when to bring up the right topic, how to bring it up and who to address and how to also not step on other people's feelings and aligning with our belief systems as we tackle difficult topics. So looking at conversations and agreements, what would you say are the main um, conversation pieces you've seen families overlook or not tackle head on straight? So looking at maybe three main um, topics. I think the two that most immediately come to mind are death and emotional subjects. Because there is in general in humanity a fear of death and a reluctance to talk about it, to face the eventuality that we're all going to die, it's just a matter of when. And not just that, but that it is perfectly possible to do the right thing, uh, to be healthy, to do uh, sports and exercise, to eat well, to spend time with your family, and still get hit by a bus when you're 26 or 46 or 61. Um, the fact that somebody is healthy and happy uh, and, and well-balanced says nothing about their life expectancy beca because you can discuss their life expectancy in the absence of accidents, but stuff happens. And so one of the things that is rarely discussed in the way that it should, and as openly as it should is, what if? What if somebody dies tomorrow? What if somebody dies today? What if um, we find that somebody is stealing money? What if somebody, one of our key executives leaves and goes to another business? Um, succession planning should never start because it should never end. It should be something we're always doing. What if this person weren't here tomorrow? Death, divorce, drugs. Um, I've seen people, you know, change religion and move to India. Um, so, you know, things happen. If somebody 
cheats on their spouse and that creates a family problem, that person may exit the, the business abruptly. Um, all, all sorts of things can happen. You may have a child who has a medical problem and you may choose to place your priorities into devoting time to that. So this whole what if of contingencies and death and, and unpleasant possibilities, people tend to, to avoid talking about unpleasant things when realistically the planning for the possibility of unpleasant things is one of the first things we should do. The second is there's a fairly overarching general paradigm, at least in, in most Western societies, um, that emotions are for the weak. Emotions are for women. Uh, emotions are something to be controlled and tamped down and avoided. And cold, clean, rational thought and conduct is superior. That's just not true. All human beings make their key decisions emotionally. Hopefully, you're making those key decisions with your emotions and a basis on good reasoning and good data. Because certainly, better data will inform better decisions and will change your emotions. It's one thing to fear crime. It's another to be aware of the actual crime statistics where you live and then be cautious and to some degree still fearful, but fearful in the right amount of the right thing in the right place at the right time. So everything emotional tends to be sort of shunned and, and shunted to a back corner and treated poorly when one of the secrets of all healthy business families is that, and in fact all healthy humans, is that they don't subjugate emotion. They integrate emotion into their thought process and their decision process. You should feel happy doing whatever you're doing. You should feel at peace with the people you're working with. Um, and you should feel comfortable about each decision. You know, often your, your mind processes data unconsciously better than it does consciously. It is possible that if your gut tells you that there's something wrong here and you can't find it consciously, your gut may be right because your, your unconscious mind is faster than you are. Um, Daniel Kahneman uh, won a Nobel Prize for a lot of his work on cognitive biases, but his, his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, is a masterclass for non-psychologists and non-economists on how we think in the, in the two different ways, what he calls system one and system two, um, the conscious, the unconscious, the instant and the thought out. But unpleasant things and emotions are the two key issues. The third is that we often avoid anything that smacks of confrontation and conflict. People seem people equate generally, and obviously I'm, I'm generalizing here. Um, people equate conflict with a fight, with uh, something destructive. And at its core, conflict just means we disagree. Conflict is a difference um, that is incompatible. So you may want to grow the company in this market. I may wish to diversify into different markets. We can't do both at the same time. We have a conflict. There's generally three kinds of conflict. There is task conflict of we disagree on what to do. There's process conflict where we disagree on how to do it. 
and there's personal conflict where I just think you're a bad person. Um, and the only one that's destructive is the third. The other two are critical to our success and our growth. If we don't have a diversity of opinion, we will have less positive outcomes. In fact, one of the key um, reasons that we argue in favor of diversity these days is because it has been clearly shown and demonstrated, proven, if you will, that a cognitively diverse group yields better outcomes than a, than, a, than a group that is too similar. That applies to work teams, boards of directors, you name it, um, family councils. So it is imperative to have diversity in your groups and in your decision-making. Um, if you're gonna bounce ideas off somebody, if you're struggling with a hard decision, by all means, do it with somebody who thinks differently than you are, so you don't create an echo chamber. But boards should have men and women. They should have people of different cultures, different societies. You should have somebody whose interest is in sales or marketing or driving a business forward, a creative field, and somebody who's a, a financier, an accountant, somebody whose life is about creating order. People who think differently, so long as they can have a civilized conversation, will yield better outcomes. So yeah. death, unpleasant things, emotional subjects, and conflict. We need to learn to talk about conflict, to engage constructively in conflict, and to use it to our advantage. I think that's the three that I'd give you. And I think they're th the three most pertinent and um, most triggering for most people because like you said, no matter where you're going to in, in the world, those topics um, touch on every family and every experience in life and bringing them into focus is probably more important than um, anything else. But like you said, but like we, we are discussing today, they're the most difficult topics to discuss. How would you advise families to get started in making these topics comfortable? And when I say comfortable, I mean, um, these topics shouldn't be a trigger, shouldn't be swept under the carpet, shouldn't be something we leave to discuss on specific days, but it should be something where if we realize that this is a topic that we need to address and that will affect us as a family, let's get to it. There's several things that I can suggest here because there's never... In nearly everything we, we can discuss about, about uh, family enterprise, there is never one universal right answer, but there is usually a right answer or a best answer for this one family at this time under these circumstances. One of the things that families need to do in order to make more things comfortable is to make it more of a habit and make it part of their working mental paradigm that whatever we're discussing is not intended to create eternal absolute rules. We're discussing the best thing or what we think today in these circumstances for us. People often fear these conversations because they don't want to set a long-term precedent um, as though this were a court of law. So having that flexibility to, to, to create a sense of impermanence, whatever we do today 
should be good for us today and we can change it later. That creates a lot of freedom that lowers tension. Second, realizing and agreeing that it's best to talk about these things, to have these conversations is a great step forward. I strongly believe and I've said for years that families only fight when they run out of all other better options. Nobody wants to fight, um, but they are very much generally afraid to fight. And so they fear engaging in conflict or disagreement because it may lead to a fight or because perhaps they've had a, a certain habit of, um, of fighting or arguing or tension with a particular family member from childhood or from past experience. So wherever possible, families should take small steps in the direction of talking about unpleasant things and, and contingencies and what ifs and emotional things and reaching agreement on something, anything. Um, there's a, but there's often a long history of behavioral patterns that will make it difficult for them to change significantly for the better on their own. It is very often necessary to have a third party there. Um, and that's, that's a resource that is very rarely used properly. And as, as I said before, nearly, if not every family in business needs a third party resource. Frankly, people are immediately better behaved and more cognizant of how they're acting and speaking as soon as there's a third party in the room. I mean, every family I've ever worked with, they're on their, on their best behavior as soon as I step in the room. They're, if, they, if they had a temptation, and not all do, but if they had any temptation to get snarky, sarcastic, insulting, uh, childish, they don't want to look bad in front, of a, in front of an outsider. So there's benefits there. And families often easily get stuck because they know their family better than everyone but they don't know, you know, seven different ways to solve this particular problem. So a third party, when, when the moment they get stuck for the first time, it says, here's some other ideas you could look at or who can ask some questions um, is really helpful. There's also the benefit that some people are reluctant to bring up certain topics because they're uncomfortable and third party can bring them in. I'll give you one example that that is just a beautiful case. One of the, mm -hmm. my favorite families of all time is a family we've been working with right now. Mm -hmm. um, basically, their their um, their father grew up uh, working extremely hard because he felt he had to, and he was extremely successful. And in the in the context of creating significant career material entrepreneurial and financial success, he was absent from home a great deal. And so there's very little connection to his kids and his kids have grown up looking at this myth of a, of a giant that everybody respects and to some degree um, ad admires and even fears of, you know, why would you disagree with him? He's usually right kind of thing. It's very hard for kids to go to their father and say, well, I don't really want to do this with you because I'm scared that you're going to call me out and you're going to make me look bad. And dad would be horrified at the thought of doing something like that, although he may have done it a few times in the past unconsciously um, because his habit, his paradigm was creating success and he didn't want his children to fail either. So in the idea of preventing them from failure, 
he may have to some degree restrain them from being adventurous and, and, and entrepreneurial on their own and trying to protect them from pain, he may have also limited their freedom and, and to some degree crimped their self-esteem. Oh. This is a conversation that's, that's very common among m many families, but is very easy for somebody like us to address. Mm -hmm. uh, because it's individual conversation with the kids and the parent. And I'm delighted to mention that within six months of of probably an six, seven hours a month to working with this family in total, there were significant changes already happening. Uh, the, the children in their 30s and 40s were more open, were more willing to commit, were more willing to take risks. Um, their father was was carefully and and deliberately being more open more more tolerant of failure and experiment and risks he was slightly uncomfortable but he knew that change was good and and he listened um within a year you know we could clearly call this family a happy ending they're going to be doing business with each other for the rest of their lives and it's all good most families if they end up hearing about people who who have serious problems it's all of the people who never had anybody to lean on for 20 years and now they have a problem that's hard to solve but would have been easy to prevent mm -hmm. i think 90 to 95 percent of all serious family problems could have been prevented by creating better habits better conversations and better agreements 10 20 years before mm -hmm. so it, it works this all works Enterprising families generally are happier and more successful um, and better citizens of their community than non-family businesses. Mm -hmm. um, but they do need a little help learning the science and the best practice rather than trying to reinvent the wheel with every single challenge they encounter. Absolutely, I agree with that. My question from um, what you just shared is what or how best do you then tackle um, situations where the family acknowledges there, there has to be these important conversations. However, there are certain personal um, challenges that some family members that may face. And when you bring in a third party or you go in as a third party, there's a lot of shame attached to it. And they feel like, um, sharing some of the personal problems will bring shame to um, their their family and will overshadow the success that they've had and um, they feel vulnerable because of it and then try to circumvent having these important discussions. Okay. Um, so first off, when you feel terrible when you feel fear when you feel shame there is a very primal urge to seek quick absolute strong solutions whether that's someone to save me uh, which yields to the birth of populism in most uh, political arenas uh, or whether it's something that will make this go away quickly cleanly clearly um, and without creating or worsening that shame or that fear that really needs to be avoided. It leads to trying to bury or hide the problem or just, you know, hop over it like a puddle very quickly. 
and the reality is with when there is strongly felt emotional pain fear um drama trauma it needs to be processed by the person by the family if if we're talking about this being a a, a puddle of mud you need to actually walk through it and get dirty because that's the best way to get through so I'd say there's two two clear recommendations. One is baby steps and gradual learning um, in the positive direction. So if you have a large problem or a large source of tension among the family that precludes reaching agreement on significant subjects, start by discussing and reaching agreement on less sensitive subjects. Families often come to us with major decisions they're having trouble making and we say okay let's make some easy decisions first let's talk about you know our in-laws the the people who marry our children when should they be able to work in the business how should they be compensated uh, can our children work in the business or businesses how should they be compensated how should they be supervised who should do that we talk about things like what should be our dividend policy and we then graduate to things that have more philosophy, like, do we believe that all of our children should have access to, you know, a solid education? Because in the end, all of our children are going to be either owners and uh, or, or executives in the company. If so, do we want to maybe create a family fund for education? By the way, as a secondary con concept there, if we believe, as many families do, that whether somebody had five children or one, it is all of our responsibilities to create an educational fund so that they all have college and a postgraduate degree available to them, even if their parents, for, for some reason, lose everything materially. And some families don't believe this, and that's fine. Again, they should be comfortable being true to who they are. But let's say a family does believe this, then we say, okay, hey, you know, your children may marry somebody who has less money than you do or, or who's had fewer opportunities in the past, but they may be a great asset to the family in terms of human capital. They may be a great asset to the business. Do you also want to include the possibility of the family funding college or a postgrad degree to a spouse who didn't have that opportunity before? Um, there's also health issues we can discuss. Does the family believe, and many do, many don't, that health, good health, or medical care is one of the things all of the members of our family should be entitled to? If so, many families establish a, a policy that when their businesses generate dividends at the end of the year, first, they will pay for the medical expenses and the insurance and the um, external payments of all the family, whatever they may be, and then distribute pro rata according to ownership. So somebody who has a child with Down syndrome or who had a child who has serious medical conditions is not essentially forced to spend their inheritance and their, and their wealth on caring for that child um, and thus is gradually impoverished out of future investments um and some families say you know this is what god gave you or this is this is what 
chance gave you and you need to deal with it. Other families disagree. But bringing up these kinds of topics from easy to more interesting and more complex allows us to then build a base of, you see, if we follow certain rules, we, we can reach agreement on many things and it creates a new basis of trust in a process that if we discuss it this way, if we do these things, then we can discuss complex, difficult things without starting a fight. And throughout that process, we are exercising the consultant's uh, power to, to play a different game. And we're doing individual sessions of coaching um, with the people who are most prone to conflict and the people who can most help manage that conflict such that by the time we reach sort of level three, level four conversations, we've also had five, six, 10 hours of individual conversation with each person, helping them understand their motivations, their feelings, their fears. And the combination of all of that leads to results in the level three, level four conversations that looks sort of magical, but it's only because not everybody had access to all of the pieces. We have access to people telling us things in confidence that nobody else hears. And, that, and that's one of the benefits of having a third, uh, a useful third party consultant around because, you know, families don't sit around reading each other's wills. They don't sit around, you know, exploring some of these things, but they will talk to me about it. That, that really helps. So sort of closing that circle, the, the baby steps growth is one recommendation. And the other one is to not reach for quick fixes. There are plenty of families who will look for somebody to do to draft a family protocol or family constitution for them because it is emotionally easier to pay somebody a lot of money when you're going to get a report back, a document, a deliverable, where you can say concretely, I got something. Thinking of, of I'm going to pay somebody $10,000, $20,000 to create this overarching family constitution, I feel like I got my money's worth. Getting into the project of I'm going to pay somebody $10,000, $20,000 to just give me good advice and hope everything turns out well, is a much more uncomfortable prospect. We, as humans, um, and I think as, as all animals do, we flee uncertainty, generally. And so families often seek people who can tell them there are easy solutions, there are quick solutions. They hope that a rule, uh, a protocol, a constitution will solve their problems. And that's just not true. The fam in, in fact, what we look at, we look at the family protocol or constitution as an essential priceless valuable tool mm -hmm. after the family has reached a level of complexity where decisions and agreements cannot or can no longer be made at light speed at need mm -hmm. for most families who are who either their businesses are not overly complex or the business might be complex but the family isn't if there's a crisis we can gather the people we need to gather around the table within an hour or two and within an hour of that we'll have a decision if we can still do that we don't yet need an overarching family constitution we need to create individual agreements to make our lives easier. But the, the, the kind of large, broad agreement that 
is something like a constitution or a protocol comes into its own when we can lean on that, when we can no longer gather people around the table quickly. So now we have a document that, okay, if we can't talk to everybody, this is what we agreed to do previously. But if you spend a lot of time thinking about contingencies and what might happen and what are the rules we want to are five, six years old, talking about your in-laws and, and children working in the business is just going to take a lot of time away from dealing with the challenges and opportunities of today. So the family constitution or protocol will be very valuable to you someday, but if you're having emotion and tension among the family today, then that constitution isn't going to do a damn thing for you. It's just not. It's going to give you a false sense of security. And then when things really blow up in your face, people are going to go, I don't care what that thing says. Because mm -hmm. they haven't committed to it. Absolutely. So avoiding the, the quick fixes or the promise of, of an easy exit and the baby steps into growth, I think, are the two answers for how families begin this process. Thank you so much, Rodolfo. Our time today has come to an end, and I would like to just give you one minute to give us your take on the final parting thought you want our listeners to walk away with. Thank you. Um, it works. I mean, if you want to boil everything down to the basics, it works. Families can be happy, can be successful, can be healthy at the same time. In fact, most are. You hear about the meltdowns and the fights and the wars and the people who are poisoning each other because that's what makes the newspapers. Most families aren't in the, in the papers. So have faith, take heart. If you try to learn best practice of family systems, if you, if you reach out to some, for someone to help you, if you do the right things, to, it works. Nearly every family will be will do great i think and other than that thank you for having me it's always a pleasure to to have these conversations with you whether it's conversations about conversations or anything else thank you so much i really appreciate you rodolfo thank you you too